You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome again to another episode of the Revision Path Podcast. I'm Maurice Cherry, and before we get to this week's interview, let's talk about MailChimp, our wonderful sponsor. MailChimp is our favorite email service provider, and we use it all the time for our monthly newsletters. It's just so easy. With drag-and-drop templates and helpful resource guides, anyone can get started with email marketing. Just visit MailChimp.com and sign up today for a free account. We've also got some big news here. We've submitted two proposals for presentations at South by Southwest 2015, uh, both Interactive and South by Southwest EDU. And we need your help to make sure that these presentations are included in South by Southwest's programming for next year. Just visit revisionpath.com forward slash South by Southwest, that's S-X-S-W, and vote for our two presentations, Where Are the Black Designers and Diversifying Design Education. Give us a thumbs up and leave us a comment. Now, our contest leading up to our 50th interview is still going on, and you can enter for free. Leave us a rating and a review on iTunes or Stitcher Radio, and send your iTunes or Stitcher name to mail at revisionpath.com so we can verify your review. We'll choose one reviewer at random, and they'll receive a $50 Amazon.com gift card. It's pretty dope, right? Links to our iTunes and Stitcher profiles are available on our homepage. Now let's get to this week's interview. I talk with serial entrepreneur Kevin Johnson, author of The Entrepreneur Mind. Here we go. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Sure, I'm Kevin Johnson, the CEO of Johnson Media Inc. And Johnson Media Inc. is an innovative marketing and communications firm that specializes in creating and implementing strategies for our clients. Uh, we serve a, a wide variety of clients in many industries, but our expertise is primarily in the financial services space. Uh, we've been around for almost 14 years. Actually, yes, 14 years almost to the date, exactly. So we've been around quite a bit, and it, it's been a joy. So for those of you that aren't very familiar with the marketing and communications industry or the advertising industry, what we do literally builds our clients' businesses. We help them to acquire and reach out to their customers. That may take the form of commercial that you may see on television, radio ad, a print ad, uh, a mobile application, a website, uh, etc., a Twitter handle. So there are so many different facets of uh, customer acquisition and, and marketing, and, and we help our clients with that. Now, you say you've been around now for you said a little over 14 years now. What's kind of been the secret to your business's longevity? I mean, if you've been around that long, that means you started probably right around the turn of the century. <laughs> it's funny you said the turn of the century. As if I needed it, anything more in addition to the 14 years to sound really old. <laughs> but... <laughs> but um, no, I, I think the secret, if if I can use that word, it's less and less of a secret if, if you uh, just are aware of what successful people do. I, I, it's just endurance. A, a lot of my story is, is about persisting despite the odds, having the motivation to keep going, even though revenues may not be coming in or they may be negative. <laughs> so sticking around for 14 years, is really a testament to my endurance, my team's endurance, 
and just the motivation and, and willingness to try and, and pursue our dreams. Now let's go back to right around the time when you first started Johnson Media. I, I should share with the audience that you attended Morehouse College. We actually went to Morehouse College right around the same time. Tell me kind of about your time there. You started a website back then, is that right? I did, and the time that I spent at Morehouse was a very important time in my life. It was a lot of fun, did a lot of work. Uh, I guess that's what you're supposed to do in college, but a lot of the work that I did wasn't in class. It was for my business, so I'm, I'm very thankful for that, for that experience. But, you know, when I arrived to Morehouse College in 1997, I arrived there very confident that I was going to become a computer scientist and work for IBM or some other major corporation. In other words, I had no idea that I would eventually be doing my own thing and that I would shun the idea of being in corporate America. So there I was on campus in 1997, I think I was 16 or 17, a little younger than most, and just really eager to, to learn more about computer science. And so I eventually caught the entrepreneurial entrepreneurial bug because uh, I wanted to solve technical problems. And after solving those technical problems, there were companies that saw the value of what I was doing. So the first idea that I had was to create online registration. And I think this may have been before your time, but when I got there in 97, we had to register for classes via the telephone. And that was probably the most arduous and frustrating experience <laughs> that I've ever had. <laughs> you know, there were bottlenecks, the phone system didn't work, and then you had to go and register in person. And, you know, depending on where you were in line, you may or may not get the class that you wanted to be in. It was, it was very, very frustrating. And so we had heard, um, and we had, uh, myself and a good friend, a fellow computer scientist, had heard that our peers at Georgia Tech were actually building online registration and that the school there was investing in students and engaging them to help build this new platform that would facilitate registration. So we, we said, hey, we, we can do that. You know, we're certainly capable. And so we put together this detailed plan. It was called, if I can remember, Project HouseNet. And we put it all together, put the budget together. I think the total cost was like $225,000 to create online registration for the school. We took it to the president, then Dr. Massey, who's still a good friend of mine, and we said, hey, we have the answers to all of your telephone registration problems, and, and we'll even do more, you know, keep dossiers on students and, and help with grades and things of that sort. But... Unfortunately, we, we were turned down. I think the school eventually went with a vendor called Banner or something, and uh, they implemented that. But from that experience, I said, you know what? Here you have the, the talent at the school, and, and you don't want to use it. So we're going to apply our talents and gifts to something else. And that's when I created the website that you're very familiar with and how we actually became friends, we created uh, clubaec.com, and clubaec.com was basically a portal for the Atlanta University Center Schools here in Atlanta, Georgia, where we are, and it became very popular. On that site, we had online chat, we had 
dating profiles. We had events uh, or footage from events almost in, in real time. And uh, just a lot of content that college students would like and enjoy. And even alumni would enjoy. For example, we'd have homecoming photos for those that, let's say, were in California and couldn't travel to homecoming. So they could enjoy and live vicariously through the video and the pictures that we put online. And ironically, the, the site was so popular um, that people in other parts of the world were hitting the site more than the students in and around Atlanta. And so what we learned was that, uh, for example, a lot of youngsters in Japan were looking at what the students in Atlanta were wearing and what they were doing because they would sell the, the Nikes or they would buy the music that we were listening to, etc. So uh, it was a really great experience to kind of see the global impact of what we thought was a local and small website. And, and that served as the, the launch pad for foreign business. Um, the reality came when a startup out of Boston called me. The startup was jobdirect.com. They were later acquired by Corn Ferry, huge recruiting firm that still exists today. But there were two young ladies out of Boston that started this website, jobdirect.com, to help college students find internships and jobs. So they called one day, the marketing director called and said, hey, how much does it cost to advertise on your website? I had no idea of what to charge. Nevertheless, I threw out a number lower than what I thought. Uh, that number was $1,800 for a banner ad, and the director said, sure, well, then you that check immediately, and that's when the, the light bulb, so to speak, went off, and I was in business. And ClubAUC.com also, I think, was a magazine at one point, too. Oh, yeah, that's right. So, you know, one of the challenges of having a website at that time, and depending on ad revenue from banners, was that no one really knew how to price those and the value was relatively low. I mean, it was nice money, but it certainly wasn't as much money as companies were putting into print publications. So we extended the brand, and at that time there maybe there was, I think maybe four or five of them. A good friend of mine, Farai and Tetla, who now is a programmer with Goldman Sachs, uh, was on my team, a brilliant guy. But we decided to extend the brand to a magazine because we called the advertisers and said, hey, if we had a magazine, would you buy advertising in our magazine? And, and sure enough, they said, yeah, well, you, you do a great job online and we'll certainly support you if you port the brand to a print publication. And that's where a lot of the money came in because companies weren't quite comfortable in the late 90s, early 2000s um, buying digital ads. It's still something new. And so that's where things really got exciting because um, lots of revenue came in and that publication became uh, cash cap. Now another, I guess, software offering that you created, and this might have been right around the time of Club AUC, was OmniPublisher. Can you tell us about that? Sure. So OmniPublisher was basically a solution to our, our own internal problem of not being able to put up content fast enough. I knew HTML, PHP, and some of the other technologies to be able to actually create the website, but some of our volunteers and writers had no clue what HTML was, and nor were they interested in finding out. So we had to create some type of online platform to help us with updates and help those people that didn't want to be technical 
with their updates. And so Omni Publisher, unbeknown to us, was, was one of the first content management systems ever. So it actually predated WordPress by a few years. And, you know, we really didn't think of it as an, uh, an enterprise unto itself. It was just a, an internal tool to help us publish video, text, and, you know, a lot of the content that our, our customers wanted, or rather our, our readers wanted. So we did that, and that was, I think, around 2000, 2001. And we eventually had another light bulb go off and saying, and, and thought that this tool, Omni Publisher, would be really helpful for local publications, uh, nonprofits, or, or any organization that wanted to publish online content. And so that's when I had to learn how to sell very quickly because I was used to companies calling us <laughs> to advertise and getting con- mm-hmm. contact with us. So that's when I had to, to learn how to sell, and that was an exciting slash frustrating time. We eventually sold that pool on the publisher to a small publisher. And, uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a great learning experience because that was when I really started to learn a lot about how to sell, how to build a product, and uh, and how to get it out there in the market. Now, speaking about you saying you had to learn how to sell, you've written a book. Your book is called The Entrepreneur Mind. And there's, I think there's a section in the book where you mention that, you know, you're in sales whether you really want to be or not. And I think that's where, where you sort of talked about the omni-publisher sale and, and things like that. How did you get the idea to to write the book? What was the process? Was it just your years of experience with Johnson Media? How did that come about? Well, the book came about in what I consider an organic way. It wasn't so much about me wanting to write a book as much as I was putting out content through my blog about almost three years ago, and people really appreciated it. So I would write anywhere from 500 to 700 words a day about different topics, and I got a lot of feedback from people that would read the post via Twitter. Uh, they may have found it via Facebook if someone shared it there. And I really loved the feedback, and they really loved the content. In fact, I had sort of this meme uh, or theme going on with the blog. You know you're an entrepreneur if. And so there are different comedic posts as well as informative or educational posts that, again, people really, really enjoy. And so eventually... What happened was a few of those readers said, hey, where can I get all of this information in one place, in in a book? And I said, that doesn't exist, but you know what? That's a great idea, and I'm doing the work now. Why don't I put some structure around what I'm writing with the goal of putting it in a book? And so I set the goal to put together 100 of these different lessons so that I could eventually put them into a book. And in about three months, that book was done. It was called The Entrepreneur Mind, as you mentioned, 100 Essential Beliefs, Characteristics, and Habits of Elite Entrepreneurs. And it's been one of the the best things that I've ever done because over the last 14 years, I've given advice, I've been a mentor, and this uh, this book is one great compact tool that I can give people to supplement whatever advice that I can give, and if I'm not there, you know, they can read the book and uh, use the knowledge that they've, they've gained from reading it. 
now tell me about how you sort of became an entrepreneur. I know you started a business at Morehouse. Was that your first business, or were you always sort of entrepreneurially minded? <laughs> I was not. You know, I hear and chuckle often at the stories of people who say, you know, when I was two, I sold lemonade and then I had a paper route. No, that that wasn't me. <laughs> I, I I was thinking I was going to go work for a big corporation and be a programmer for life. Um, but ironically, I, I enjoyed doing my own thing to the point where, you know, the whole corporate world scared me by the time I was ready to graduate from college. In fact, I think I was terrified of it probably by sophomore year after doing some internships. But I just didn't do well with, with authority or the, or the corporate structure or corporate I don't want to say lifestyle, just corporate reality. Um, and so, you know, I was turned off because I had done an internship and uh, my manager asked me to do something and I was capable of doing it. And I did it in a weekend and so I delivered what she'd asked me to do and the VP went nuts at the company because he felt that I should essentially stay in, in my place and work up to the privilege to actually be able to code this particular type of project. And I thought, that was crazy. I said, I don't, I don't want to be in a structure or, or with a company or in an organization that restricts my creativity or my abilities. And that's when I said, ah, I think this is not going to work for me. I'd, I'd rather pursue entrepreneurship, which will ultimately bring me uh, self-actualization and happiness and help me get up in the morning and fuel me to to chase my passion. So that's sort of my story and, and why I, I chose to be an entrepreneur. But no, I, I wasn't one of those kids that came out of the womb screaming, uh, I want to be an entrepreneur. I think it was more, at first, a technical challenge to solve a problem. And then mm -hmm. I realized with the help of customers that that was tremendous value. What have been some of the high points of your career so far? The high points? You know, I, I think the most recent high point is, has been publishing this book. I've met all types of people. I've uh, spoke in many different places and connected in ways that I never thought would be a, a possible. And, you know, one of the things that really brings me joy is the fact that it's a self-published book. And so I had offers from publishers, but, you know, they, they didn't really make sense for what I was trying to do. I wanted to ultimately own the content and be able to push it out via Twitter and, you know, do different things that a traditional publisher wouldn't allow me to do. So the fact that I was able to self-publish and for the book to become a bestseller and continue to raise, continue to rise in sales every month has just, it's been awesome. Because I know, based on those numbers, that people are getting substantive advice about how to start their own business and will be inspired to, to follow their passions. Now, you're located here in Atlanta. Tell me, are you involved a lot with the local, I guess, Atlanta entrepreneurial ecosystem? I know we've got, you know, tech accelerators and co-working spaces and everything. Are you really involved with a lot of that? Not as much as I should be. So I, I have engaged with organizations like TAG, Technology Association of Georgia, uh, primarily through the book. Uh, I spoke in Augusta, for example, to 
a group of great young entrepreneurs there, uh, provided books uh, and myself for speaking engagements here in and around Atlanta. But I think there's a lot more that I could be doing. And it's not so much what I should be doing as much as I need to do because I'm, I'm an entrepreneur at heart. So being disconnected from that entrepreneurial ecosystem is it's odd. I guess that's the best way to put it. And so we're very involved, very engaged, serving our clients here, but, you know, there's something pulling at my heart because I'm truly entrepreneurial to the core to, to get back into the ecosystem and start new companies and help others. So I'm excited that there are a lot of opportunities here in Atlanta. And so I, I definitely need to do more. It's, a, it's becoming a great city to be an entrepreneur in. It was already great. Uh, and it always ranks high on Kaufman's list or whatever list mm-hmm. there is for best cities and best states for entrepreneurship. But, you know, it, it's changing, and you, you may have noticed that, that too. I do have a fear, though, and I share the same reservations and concerns that a friend of mine, Bernie, over the Atlanta Technology Angels right now, she she said recently at a at an Atlanta Metro Chamber of commerce event that she thinks all these incubators and accelerators may not actually be helping a lot of entrepreneurs. She, she thinks a lot of what you learn and, and need to learn to be successful is, is about putting the product or service out there in the market and, and just doing it and not necessarily being coddled by a lot of the accelerators or incubators. So, you know, the verdict is still out. We'll see in two or five or even ten years what the own plot um, an increase of incubators and entrepreneurial support mechanisms will yield. I'm optimistic, but just a little bit cautious. That's interesting. I've not heard anyone mention that they feel that the accelerators and the, the co-working spaces and things here are a, a negative thing in some kind of way. That's I, I could kind of see that. Because I feel like, you know, depending on where the particular, it's sort of in a way, almost, I don't want to say it feels like a turf war. That's not really the best way to put it. But it feels like, you know, these particular accelerators and co-working spaces kind of have their own separate cultures and things like that. And it's hard to see how they really sort of work together if they work together. So I, I could see it in that way how possibly it could be a bad thing. Now, I know that Morehouse also has a, an entrepreneur center. Are you familiar with that? I am, and they definitely have their their spin and take on things. I I think our school could do more to foster entrepreneurship and innovation among the students. That program Mm -hmm. um, initially came about with uh, a large focus on helping established companies to um, get certifications and things and government contracts. So I, I still think there's a lot that the center can do to foster some entrepreneurial creativity and innovation among the students. You got your degree in computer science from Morehouse, is that right? Did you change your major or did you stay with computer science? I changed my major several times, but I, uh, I ultimately did uh, get my, my degree in computer science and Spanish, so that's, that's what uh, I have. Well, no, the, the reason that I mention that is Sort of to the point of you saying how Morehouse could kind of do more. I started off, you know, as, as a dual degree 
computer science, computer engineering major, and then I switched. I think after my first semester, I switched to to math because you remember Dr. Jones from the computer science department, right? Yes, bless his heart, rest in peace. <laughs> <laughs> so I remember going to him and saying, you know, I really want to learn about the web and I want to learn more about, you know, HTML and CSS and JavaScript and things like that. And he kind of really bluntly told me that you should probably change your major because <laughs> you're not going to find that here. That's not what this program is about. And I had, you know, kind of been tinkering with HTML and stuff in high school. And, you know, it was kind of a blow to me. I'm like, that's kind of why I wanted to do computer science, computer engineering. <laughs> that's what I came here for. <laughs> yeah, like I thought I was going to go in and do stuff with the web. And they were like, no, that's not really – we don't do that. He was like, you could probably go to Georgia Tech and find that. But – you're not going to find that here. Like, oh, okay. And I switched to, you know, to math. I got my degree in math. But even now when I look at, and I guess I'm comparing Morehouse here to Spelman because Spelman has, you know, a very prolific computer science department. They have, you know, the robotics department and things like that. So they're clearly doing a lot, I think, in the sort of STEM space with respect to exposure and projects and things like that. And Morehouse to me has always felt more, business oriented right. like towards the towards the field of like business and maybe political science accounting and then of course the hardest the hard sciences like biology chemistry etc I would like to see I mean I feel like now it's 2014 I would like to see what Morehouse is going to do or what they can do to sort of come up to speed you know technologically you know those are my sentiments almost exactly I remember Dr. Jones teasing me. I mean, he was very based in theory, right? Yeah. Um, and and it may have been because he couldn't get the resources he needed, whether it was staff or um, you know money for other things to teach. At the time when I came in, the Java or the JavaScript, etc. Um, so, you know, the good thing is, though, that they did have C++ um, and object-oriented programming was just being introduced. So, you know, we, we had a good basis and, you know, a lot of the sub subsequent languages that are now popular today, you can fairly easily pick them up if you've got a good base in certain approaches to, to programming. But, no, you're... You're right. I think there's a lot that the school could do to upgrade, so to speak, to mm -hmm. 2.0 or even 3.0. I know, you know, when I think when I got there, I think Fortran was, was still even being taught. It was just a bit antiquated. The yeah. good thing is, some of the students that I've talked to, just casually, have, have mentioned that they are teaching some of the newer programming languages and technologies, such as Java, etc. So. I'm hopeful, and, and uh, you know, I think the school does just enough to, to stay relevant. Uh, whether they can keep up with this faster pace of technology is is more of a question, I think, with, with more and more limited resources. But, and, you know, I'm hoping that the department is strong because, you know, programming is, is so needed. I mean, everybody is pushing now for people to learn a little bit of programming because it's it's really advantageous in any industry that you're in. Yeah, that's true. We just wrapped up uh, HBCU month back in June, and so we talked to 
to designers and developers, et cetera, that has went to HBCUs. And I feel like the overall feeling that I got from that, and, you know, we only talked to people from a few schools, but the, the feeling that I got overall was that HBCUs still need to do more to try to prepare students that are in these STEM fields for going out into the real world uh, for whatever their career is, that they want their career to still be in these STEM fields, that there still needs to be more kind of in general. And, you know, in the past few months or so, there have been big companies like Twitter, no, not Twitter, I'm sorry, Yahoo, Google, et cetera, that have released their diversity data for employees so you can see how many women work here, how many African-Americans, et cetera. And so, of course, that sort of reignites this conversation about diversity and technology. What's sort of your opinion about that? <laughs> Good question. And, you know, I, I recall watching, I think it was Soledad O'Brien's Black Film Technology, or uh, what is it? Black oh, the, uh, yeah, the Black in America. Was it the one when they were in Silicon Valley? Exactly. I remember watching yeah. that, and I was so disgusted. I said, oh, this is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I said, this is a shame. Why Why are we, oh, this is terrible. And, you know, it, it's it's funny, and I, I offer constructive criticism. Angela Benton is a good friend. In fact, I just tweeted her yesterday because I saw her artist rendering picture in the Wall Street Journal next to Mark Zuckerberg, and she had some nice opinion pieces in yesterday's paper marking the 135th anniversary of the Wall Street Journal. So that was really cool. But, you know, I commend Angela and Wayne Sutton and the guys and the crew going out there. And they've come a long way. But that first program, or that first year of the New Me Accelerator and, and the, the subsequent CNN documentary of Focus was, was hard to watch because my experience has been quite different in that, you know, the people that I've grown up with and my peers, like Dr. Paul Judge, who was at Morehouse when I was there, he may have been there when you were there. But a lot of, of black technologists don't go to Silicon Valley. You know, we're in Triangle Park, we're in Atlanta, we're in New York, we're, in, we're all over. So there's quality mm -hmm. talent, quality companies, million-dollar, multi-million-dollar companies run by African-Americans that have a background in technology. So that was very difficult to watch. Now, there is certainly a challenge with the number of African-Americans or women in Silicon Valley, of course, but, you know, I, I like to broaden the perspective and say, you know, there are people doing great things other places in the country. Silicon Valley definitely needs some work. I wonder if that particular, it's funny you mentioned that, that episode, though, I wonder if that is sort of what fueled a lot of the conversation that we see now around diversity and technology, because it feels like with that, the narrative is now that Silicon Valley has to be the end goal. And I agree with you in that. I don't feel that it has to be the end goal. There's certainly other places that you can set up shop and you can do well. New York, for example, is really emerging as a big tech company, you know, a big tech city. So Silicon Valley is not the only place that you have to go to try to, to make it, so to speak. I agree. And, you know, I think Paul Judge wrote a really great op-ed piece on TechCrunch after that CNN documentary came out. And he was saying just that, you know, there are other people doing great things. Dr. Boyce Watkins uh, also did some nice rebuttal essays and just, you know, tried to refute 
the premise that there there aren't, or the suggestion that there really aren't that many successful entrepreneurs or technologists in the U.S., let alone Silicon Valley. So, yeah, I think I think we're on the same page. Uh, don't get me wrong, though. There is a, a lot more that we can and need to do, and I think HBCUs uh, can definitely lead the way in creating the, the mass numbers of STEM students that we need to to be successful, not only as African Americans, but as, as a country. How can we increase diversity in the tech community? You, you mentioned that HBCUs were, were a part of that, but are there other, other things that we can do as a community to kind of help diversify and, and increase our numbers? I think as it relates to the increase in African Americans in technology, we definitely can put more resources into developing programs for youngsters. You know, we've got the Black Girls Code that's kind of popular and hot right now. I think exposing middle-aged, not middle-aged, but middle school-aged children as well as high school students to the HTMLs um, and the different types of technologies early will really make a difference. I think that's in large part your story, that's my story. I think my interest started at home, whether it was getting on Prodigy when that came out in the 80s, late 80s, and then finding my way up to building web pages in high school for presentations with HTML. So I, I think integrating technology and introducing technology to middle school age kids as well as high school students is very, very important to, to set that that uh, seed, which will eventually grow into hireable talent. And I think that's what a lot of the Silicon Valley guys say we, we lack, is that quality mass numbers uh, or pools of candidates that they can pull from. Now, you mentioned earlier that you also mentor some students, or you mentor you know people that are coming up in the industry. Have you had any mentors that have helped you along the way? I have, actually. And, you know, one of the, the first precepts that I, I try to get across in giving advice or mentoring someone is you've got to bring something to the table. But one of my first mentors was Kent Matlock, who still runs a very successful and uh, one of the largest African-American advertising agencies in the country. You know, when he reached out to me, or rather when I reached out to him, I said, hey, I, I know you've got this client. We can help you with uh, spreading the word about this client's product on campus. And so I went into the door with open arms, you know, offering something to him that would add value to his company and ultimately to his client. So, you know, I always tell people that you, you don't want to just ask for something but ultimately go in uh, contributing to what they're trying to do. And so, yes, I've, I've had many mentors to help me, whether it's following me leads or letting me know about a new technology or, or simply writing a book review on Amazon. And so, you know, it, there might be some small things there, but that's okay. You know, every little bit helps and it, it all adds up. And that way you have a mutual relationship and it's not just one of, of a one-way relationship. Who has offered you some of the most useful career advice, and what was that advice? Yeah, it's it's funny when I hear that question because for some reason I have 
the idea that career means like nine to five. <laughs> so career has this, this weird negative connotation. But, but no, I just have to expand my, my horizon. I, I know what you're trying to, to get at. I, I'd have to say, you know, a lot of the advice that I've gotten about careers and entrepreneurship has come from books. One of my favorite quotations is by Peter Drucker, the godfather of management. And he said, and I learned this my sophomore year, and it changed my life, the best way to predict your future is to create it. And, you know, that approach to life is is something that is not very common. You know, most people go through college or through life being reactive. They let their careers happen to them, so to speak, or they're just not being proactive in creating that ideal life that they want. So I'd say most of the advice that I've gotten has has come from the wisdom that that others have placed in a book, which really encouraged me to, to write my book because I know how important and how instrumental those books that I've read were in, in my early development as an entrepreneur. Now let's switch gears a little bit here. Let's talk more about you personally, kind of step outside of the, the entrepreneur box here. Are you where you wanted to be at this stage in your life with everything that you've got going on? <laughs> no, I'm way behind, ironically. <laughs> so I, I set my, my hopes and my dreams very high early on and it's, it's funny, growing up, I was I was a huge fan of the NBA. I'm not so much now, probably because I'm so busy and I can't keep up with the closet players other than Duncan and LeBron and the big guys. But I, I mention that because growing up, I loved the NBA and I always wanted to, to, to play in the NBA. That didn't quite work out when I stopped growing at five, six, five, seven. And so I kind of had to figure out a, a different way to pursue those dreams and, and and entrepreneurship is one of those ways. But, you know, I, I mentioned all of that because I always used to watch the NBA players say, like, I wanted to buy my mom a house. You know what I mean? Have you ever heard that? Like, I want to buy my house. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, that's what I always wanted to do. So one of my dreams when I started my company and started making a little money, I was like, oh, man, I, I want to buy my mom a house. But it didn't quite make sense um, considering that my dad, <laughs> had already done that, so <laughs> it didn't quite make sense. You know, my background was, was a little different. But no, I I say that jokingly because my 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 dreams are really high. I'm buy my house, I'm just make uh, hundreds of millions of dollars, and and so I'm a little behind. I'll put it that way. But I'm not complaining by by any means. In the last 14 years has been a, a great ride, and um, the company is doing very well. In fact, our best year yet was was last year. And I think there's a lot of great things on the horizon. Now, speaking of your father, you come from a pretty musically talented family. And that talent, of course, for you, manifested itself in the form of a Latin band. Can you tell us about that? <laughs> sure. So I, I was thinking about this, actually, maybe a couple of years ago. And I said, you know, people always are amazed that I, I do so many different things. And they seem to be disparate, you know, non-connected, and just as if someone gave me these random talents in life. And, and so I thought about this. I said, they may have a point. And so I came up with this idea. I said, everything that I do well in life or that I'm interested in doing in life has to do with a language. So I'm fluent in Spanish. 
I play the piano. Music is a language that connects to the band, and I'll talk a little bit about that later. Computer science, right? That's a language. Um, mm-hmm. Also, speak sign language. Well, not speak sign language, but <laughs> sign sign language. That's mm-hmm. a language. I wrote a book, right? That that requires a certain level of mastery of, of language. So, I, I've learned that. In oh, and of course, the company marketing and communications. So much of marketing right. and, and communications is based on language. And so, I've learned after literally, I'm sitting down for an hour and thinking about it that my my gift in life. Will, will probably evolve around language and communications of, of some type. And so, yeah, I'm a musician. My father played in church. My brother played with, uh, played with the Lincoln Center Jazz Orchestra, one of the best orchestras in the world. I played with one of my salads, Harry Hancock, and the like. And so that kind of rubbed off on me. So combining my, my love of the Spanish language and, and music, I, I play in an Afro-Cuban and Latin Say salsa band, and we have a lot of fun. So it's it's a it's a, an opportunity for me to let my hair down, so to speak. Nice, nice. If you had to live somewhere else, where would you live? Where would it be? I know you've got a family now, so you have to consider that as well. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh man. You know, it's funny. I always ask people that question, and it's rarely asked of me. So I'm trying to think where I would live. Uh, wherever taxes are lowest. <laughs> no, Spoken like no. a true businessman. <laughs> exactly. New Zealand. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I'm thinking, you know, I really like the Caribbean. I would probably live in two places because if I lived all the time in the Caribbean, um, I probably wouldn't get very much work done. But my two favorite places there are Barbados and the Dominican Republic. And, you know, Perhaps in the summers, I would live in... I've really enjoyed Norway, the fjords of Norway. So those are two places among many that I would, would love to, to live in someday. I don't know if I'll accomplish those goals, but I'll, I'll definitely visit. If you weren't doing what you're doing now with Johnson Media Group, what would you be doing? What do you think you know, your life path would take you? I'd be dead. D-E-A-D. <laughs> Not by my own doing. <laughs> it's a little bit morbid. But no, I, you know, I talk about this in my book. I'm like, you know, anything other than what I'm doing now, primarily a nine-to-five, I'd rather be dead than, than doing that. So it's a bit extreme, but I, I really can't see myself doing anything else because I'd be so unhappy doing my own thing and, and causing my own path in life. Uh, even though I may not have a dollar in my pocket, is gratifying and I think valuable. And you know, it's a little bit easier to say now that the company's done very well. But you know, things change when you have responsibilities, wife, children. So it may not be so easy to say that if things were going poorly. But you know, right now I really don't see myself doing other than what I'm doing now. What's the future look like uh, for you? Let's say, like in the next five years, where do you see yourself? Oh, next five years. That's a hard one. I was I was thinking you were going to ask me the next five minutes. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I know that definitely. Now, the, the next five years, uh, you know, we're just going to continue down this path of, of growth. It's really gratifying to be able to build a team uh, and change, change lives by employing people, also uh, by delivering tremendous value to clients. So 
so, you know, we're just trying to scale and continue to do more of that. Um, I really like the, the spaces that we're in now in serving financial services companies uh, as well as some in the automotive category. We hope to expand some of those industries that we serve, but that's where I see Johnson Media in five years, just growing perhaps double the size. And what about you personally? Where do you see yourself? I see myself on the beach in Barbados or the Dominican Republic or rolling down the Norwegian fjords. No, um, me personally, I, my goal is to, to just become a better me, better husband, better leader uh, of my company. And really, yeah, I, I think the phrase get back to the community is kind of overdone, but that's what comes to mind. I, re- I really want to be a better influencer and, and change uh, in the Atlanta community, working to meet some of the needs of, of people, uh, underserved people here, and, and maybe, just maybe, in other places around the world. Now, just to kind of wrap things up, where can our audience find out more about you online? Sure, there are primarily two places. The first would be johnsonmedia.com. That's the marketing communications firm that I've headed for the last 14 years. And you'll find uh, lots of information there about our clients, uh, what the company does, and a little bit about me. Also, for more information about my book, The Entrepreneur Mind, you can visit uh, theentrepreneurmind.com or you can go on Google and, and throw on The Entrepreneur Mind. It doesn't matter if uh, entrepreneur gives you trouble with the spelling. Google will correct it <laughs> and you to find me there. So, again, theentrepreneurmind.com or you can find it on, on Amazon. I am on Twitter. That's probably where I spend most of my social media time and my Twitter handle is at bizwizkevin. That's at B-I-Z-W-I-Z, Kevin, K-E-V-I-N. All right, sounds good. Kevin Johnson, it has really been an honor. I mean, I've known you for well over 10-plus years, so the fact that I'm able to really sit down with you and talk to you about the work that you've done and how you've kind of built your business and everything has really been something. I really think that people get a lot out of this, so thank you. I appreciate it. Oh, you are very welcome. Thanks for having me. And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Kevin Johnson and thanks to you for listening. Don't forget to thank our sponsor as well, MailChimp. MailChimp reigns supreme when it comes to email marketing, and it's the service provider of choice for designers and small businesses all over the world. Visit them at MailChimp.com and sign up for a free account. Make sure you vote for our two presentations for South by Southwest 2015 and participate in our 50th interview contest by leaving us a review on iTunes or Stitcher Radio and sending us your name. One random reviewer will receive a $50 Amazon.com gift card. That's just for one simple review. Now, Revision Path is a 318 media project. If you like these interviews and the other content we're providing, then let us know. Just visit revisionpath.com forward slash donate, leave a tip in our tip jar, sponsor an upcoming episode, or join at the $5 fist bump level and show your ongoing support. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.